O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. We live in a world where we have a tendency to see everything as okay. To think, uh, on, to think on the bright side, to, to see things as um, the potential latent within, if you will. And I don't mean to say that that's not necessarily a helpful and healthy thing at times, but I do want to suggest that, this, that our ability to see the world as a place that's okay tends to produce a, an internal disposition where we we tend to think we can rely upon ourselves to navigate through the world that's okay. If the world is okay, if it's not that bad, then, then I can surely kind of go from point A to point B to C to D and make it through um, this world that's okay. And this tendency that we have to depend upon ourselves, which runs all the way through most all of, uh, all of our life, whether um, we see the world as okay or not. I don't mean to say that it's only for those who think the world is okay, who, who find themselves depending on themselves. But it's, it tends to be reinforced by seeing a world that's relatively neutral, if you will, um, that's just, just okay. This psalm presents us a picture of somebody in great anguish. These words of, I am weary with my moaning. Every night, every night, really? Every night, imagine, every night. I flood my bed with tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. I drench my couch with my weeping. We get a picture of someone who is um, anything but okay and, and feeling anything but um, that the world is okay in Psalm 6. Psalm 6 is the first of what the church has, at least since the 5th century, referred to as the penitential psalms. We're in the middle of a series called the Songbook of God's People, looking at the psalms, this uh, great collection of, of songs that sing the theology, the beliefs, and, and the worship of the people of God. And uh, these psalms have a way of, of teaching us how to grow to maturity in Jesus. They give us language for every occasion. And, and this psalm tonight gives us some pretty potent language for some pretty challenging situations. The penitential psalm, Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51. And if you were with us during Lent, we spent four weeks in Psalm 51. So you all should know your penitential psalms. Um, psalm 51, Psalm 102, 130, and 143. These are the, the seven penitential psalms, seven, six, um, that, uh, that we have in the psalms. And um, what these penitential psalms do, they are, they are Primarily individual laments, uh, a moaning, if you will, before the Lord, opening up your heart before God. But what they do is they 
forever undermine a sense of the world as okay. They show us that, that, that actually things are not okay in a very basic way. And they give us a language for how to approach God in the midst of this, um, this place of not being okay. And as a result, because we see that the world is not okay, because we see that we're in trouble, and we've talked about prayer and the Psalms arising out of trouble, these penitential Psalms push us to a place of acknowledging our human frailty and fallibility, anything that is but being okay and being able to make it through life on our own. And they push us to a place of utter dependency a place of, 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 um, of great need, acknowledging our great need before the God who can rescue, the God who can save, the God who can forgive, the God who can make new life out of something that was dead. So they lead us, if you will, the penitential Psalms, lead us into a place of affirming the great truth that the Psalms want to communicate to the people of God. Um, the great exhortation, if you will, which is take refuge in the Lord. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in God, Psalm 2.12. And we saw that as the kind of chief insight, the chief call of the Psalms. So the penitential Psalms, because they, they're, they're on this landscape of things not being okay, lead us and drive us down deeply to take our refuge in God. And they also, once and for all, shatter the myth of perfectionism in the church today. The myth that you have to be 100% okay all the time to be a truly mature uh, Christian believer, to be walking with God. They show us an insight into um, the heart of one who's seeking after God, an insight into their life that says, no, this person isn't perfect. This person isn't necessarily fundamentally sound even. There are some things that, that are unsound about this person that, that, aren't, that aren't rosy and um, and so these psalms give us an ability to, to, to combat the tendency to have this veneer over the Christian church or Christian people, which suggests that everything's okay. And they undermine that and lead us to something more real, more true, more freeing, and more liberating, which is acknowledging our need before a God who can meet our need. So that's a bit about the, the penitential psalms in general. But let's look back at Psalm 6 now in particular. We don't know exactly what the circumstances are that, that bring this psalm about. Um, there are hints that this was a psalm that was arising out of somebody who was very sick. You see in verse 2, he says, um, Be gracious to me, for I am languishing. Heal me, for my bones are troubled. But we, it's not named for sure. It could be sickness. It could be the depth of his own sin. It could be persecution. We get talk about enemies later in this text and at the end of the psalm. Um, we're not exactly sure, but what we're confident of, even though we don't know exactly the, 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 uh, the context, we're confident of the fact that this psalm arises out of deep trouble. Out of deep trouble. And we talked about this in weeks past. There's a way in which these words are flowing from someone who has has an accumulated sense of the sheer mass of trouble in the world around them. Trouble on every side, if you will. Trouble in, in damaged lives, in broken hearts, broken relationships, abuse, rape, hunger, 
torture, greed, poverty, arrogance, injustice, seeing these things all around us in the world today. And if any of us open our eyes and just look for a moment, we see these kinds of things. And many of you sitting here may may know and feel these kinds of things right now in your own life. We see these kinds of troubles all around. But it gets compounded, this accumulated sense of grief or of, of anguish over the trouble in the world. This gets compounded, maybe even exponentially, when we begin to see that the trouble in the world is not just out there. It's not just my enemies. It's not just the circumstances that have fallen upon me. But the trouble actually resides in here as well. There's not, just a, there's not just a bunch of them wrongs, but there are us wrongs as well. There are, are, are ways in which we are implicated in the trouble of the world around us. And so the, the psalmist is in this place of, of seeing all of this trouble and being overwhelmed by the weight of, of this trouble upon him. What does he see in addition to seeing trouble? What else does he see? There's some hints in the first part of Psalm 6. He sees, he sees that the proper response to this trouble is not perhaps the most natural response to this trouble. The proper response, the, the natural response to seeing all kinds of trouble around us is to begin to clench our fists and look up at the heavens and say, God, how could you? That's, that's the natural response that we have when things begin to not go our way. We, we shake our fist. But the psalmist isn't, isn't cursing God in the psalm. But he's aware at the same time in the midst of his lament that the just and right and holy response of the God that he's calling out to, verse 1, is anger and wrath. In other words, he, he can see that actually um, all the stuff that's going wrong, perhaps in, in his own life, we don't, again don't know exactly what those things are, but um, in the way that he's implicated in those things at some level. Now, I want to be clear and say, if it is sickness here, um, the biblical witness does at times give us an indication that certain kinds of sickness or situations of sickness or, or trouble in the world are the direct result and consequence of our sin. But we don't make, a, we don't make a, a rule that says anytime that you're sick or that you have something happen to you, this means that there's a, an underlying um, root cause of sin in your life. Just look at Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talking about the thorn in his flesh. This is something God gave to him. So, but in this case, it's clear that the psalmist is making some kind of connection between the trouble in his life and his own complicitness in some way, his own, his own sin in some way. So he's saying, God... The right response, what I see in, in this trouble, is not so much for me to shake my fist at you, but is for you to respond with your wrath and with your anger, with your just response to a world that has missed the mark of what you created it to be, and to a people that have missed the mark of what, to what you've created it to be. So the psalmist sees this, this, this sees this rightly about um, about God's character and about His response to sin in the world, to the brokenness of the world. And he sees himself underneath that, not outside of it critiquing God, but underneath it 
as a proper recipient, if you will. So he's pleading with God, God, don't give me this anger, don't give me this wrath. Think back to the, or think up now to the Gospels, to when Jesus catches this woman, uh, or this woman is caught, he doesn't catch her, this woman is caught in the act of adultery, somehow the man gets left out of the story. Um, but the woman is caught in the end of John chapter 8. And the people come to condemn, and they come to, to, to bring this woman under judgment. And Jesus stoops down and starts writing something in the sand. We don't know what he was writing, but then he, he, he stands up and, and they say, shouldn't, you know, doesn't the law say that we should stone this, this woman? And he says, well, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And there's a parallel there in seeing also the world around us in trouble, seeing ourselves in trouble, and seeing the, 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 the complicitness that we have in this trouble, in one sense or another, that says to sh shake our fist at God would be like taking up the stone and casting it. And so the psalmist sees that actually he's appropriately under God's just response to a world that has gone amiss. So he sees this, God's response in verse 1, but then he also sees something else in verses 2 through 5. He, sees, he has an awareness in the midst of this circumstance of God's great and wonderful love. So he reaches out to God in the midst of his trouble and cries out for his steadfast love. Verse 4, turn, O Lord, Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Even though I recognize that I'm complicit in the world that's broken around me, even though I realize that I'm part of the problem, and even though I realize that I'm properly given your anger and your wrath, God, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Turn, O oh Lord. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how all prayer is petitioning the character of God. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. He's petitioning God's character as steadfast love, the way God revealed himself to Moses and the Israelites in, in Exodus. A God of steadfast love. And saying, God, turn, relent, O Lord. Come and have mercy. There is a sense in the midst of this trouble, uh, there's a, an element of praise in the psalmist's cry to be turning even at all in his circumstances to a God and crying out for his character to take action in the midst of his circumstances. And this all reinforces the call to take refuge in the Lord. So he sees trouble, he sees God's just response, and he sees the character and nature of God to whom he's crying out for mercy. But he sees all that in the midst of verses 6 and 7. Weary with moaning, flooding his bed with tears every night, drenching his couch with weeping, Wasting his way, his eye wasting away because of grief and growing weak because of all his foes. Here's what I want to say. Tears are okay. Weeping is a part of the life that we live. Recognizing and protesting that, that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be is a, is a part of what we do as as people who follow this God who made everything that we see. And so in the midst of this trouble, the psalmist is crying out and weeping and drenching his couch. Now, I'm not saying that this is where we should live all the time. Certainly the, the way of following Jesus is filled with joy and filled with peace and filled with life, abundant life. But in the midst of a world that's filled with trouble, there will be times like this for the psalmist in Psalm 6 when all of that grief and trouble seems to fall down upon us and literally break our back. 
there will be times when you get one more piece of difficult news and you'll feel broken. And it's in those times that we have freedom. We've talked about the Psalms giving us language. We have freedom to cry out to God, to lament before Him, to weep, to mourn. And the, psalm, the psalmist enables us to do this. And this, um, this um, passage, this, this verse that says, uh, every night I flood my bed with tears could also be translated, I'm swimming in a sea of tears, surrounded on every side. And maybe you're having a great week and you're like, what's he talking about? <laughs> I want to acknowledge that as well. I think there's, there's all kinds of parameters here in, in human experience. Why is he so down? Um, we live in a world that's mixed. And, and it's very true that, that sometimes you're in the place of tears and sometimes you're in the place of rejoicing. But in this case, I just want there to be permission in the church, in the Church of the Cross. I want there to be permission in your life as a follower of Jesus for things not to be okay, for you to actually have moments of drowning in tears. In the midst of those moments where you're drowning, still to find language here in the Psalms to appeal to the steadfast love of God, to have mercy on you, to cry out with even a whimper of praise in the midst of that place of hardship. Because even so, even in the midst of the tears and the drenching and the crying and, and, and so on and so forth, even in the midst of things not being okay, the psalmist says, God will be faithful. God will be faithful. That's what verses 8 through 10 are about. Somehow, surprisingly, in the midst of his circumstances, he declares that God has heard his weeping, the sound of his weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. This is a prayer for God to turn, almost to repent, for God to relent, to turn around, to change his circumstances. And he says that God has heard him and all his enemies will be ashamed. There's this proclamation in the midst of this place of trouble that God will be faithful. And indeed, God has been faithful. God has seen the nature of the world that the psalmist sees and knows and feels and experiences. He's seen it. There's nothing that's hidden from his sight. He sees it all. He sees just how far astray we've walked. He sees just how much the world has missed the mark of his good and perfect design. He sees this world. And yet, in the midst of that seeing of God, God seeing the world like this, instead of responding as he is enabled and entitled to respond as a just and holy creator with his anger and his wrath. What did he do? Instead of sitting to the side and, 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 um, and, being, and remaining relatively detached, what does God do in the midst of his seeing the world the way the psalmist sees the world? He jumps in. Literally. He jumps in. He... he takes upon himself human form. He becomes incarnate. He's born of a virgin. He enters into the world of trouble. And he's known as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You think there's need, justification for tears in the Christian life? There's Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. There's Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem because it's missed the mark, it's missed the design. And there's Jesus weeping in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and at the cross, there's Jesus. 
Pascal said, Christ is in agony to the end of the world. And there's a sense in which that's, that rings true with all the suffering, all the pain, all the heartache, all the broken lives that we experience and see on a regular basis. There is Christ hanging on the cross, taking upon himself all of the trouble that is the result of our sin, of our walking astray. And he goes there to ensure that there is a time coming, as Revelation says, when all these tears that are drenching our couches and flooding our beds right now, all these tears will be wiped away. And there shall be no more crying, no more weeping, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. He enters in. He doesn't sit back. He enters in. He sees. He enters in. He takes upon himself. And he sets us free now to live for this hope of one day things being made well once again. All will be made new. This is what our God does. He is faithful through and through and through. As a community, we have walked through quite a bit of, of hard news, quite a bit of challenging times. For those of you who might be visiting tonight, we've been uh, a church plant now, I guess, for about a, two years almost. And uh, in those two years, there's been, uh, I think, an uncanny amount of challenging things that we've walked through as a community. And we've weeped together, and we've cried together, and, and we will continue to do those things together. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that, we've known the steadfast love of God. We've known this, this God who's pursued his people on a rescue mission, who's taken upon himself our grief and our sorrows. And we've clung to him as his people. And, and that's what the psalmist is calling us to as, as those who follow in this way after God. Is, is to cry and to weep, but is to cling and to call out and to petition the character of a God whose love is displayed most perfectly and beautifully on the cross, given for us, Christ given for you. That's what we celebrate at the table together tonight. That's why we gather week after week, because of this great love of God in the midst of our troubled world. Amen.